Hello and welcome to the Conversation Weekly. I'm Mel Marwani today from Madrid, and I'm Nihal Al Hadi in Toronto. Nihal, today we're going to tackle a topic that's been in the headlines a lot recently, although not just recently, the International Monetary Fund. What comes to mind when I say IMF or International Monetary Fund? What comes to mind is this global kind of banking institutions where member nation states put money into it, like just now during the COVID-19 pandemic where the IMF provided loans to help countries deal with the financial impact and consequences of the global pandemic. Yes, you're right. During the pandemic, the IMF provided loans to over 80 countries, and that's what the IMF does. It gives loans to countries when they're facing financial crises and emergencies. And at the moment, there are over 90 countries that are indebted to the IMF. I've read a lot about some of the IMF's programs that started in the 70s and 80s, like structural adjustment programs that have an impact until today. on development in countries in the global south. Yeah, you're right. Back in the 1980s, the IMF granted loans to developing countries across the world with the condition that they had to cut back their social programs and services. And as a result, people are now questioning the impact it's had on the global south. And this is what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Exactly what has been the impact of IMF loans on recipient countries? Has the IMF learned from its past mistakes and why do countries still turn to the IMF for loans? But first, let's look at how the IMF came to be in the first place. My name is Danny Bradlow. I'm a professor and senior fellow in the Center for Advancement of Scholarship at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. So I do research on the legal aspects of development finance. I've been working in this field for a long time. I've been working particularly on accountability of the multilateral development banks. I have a book coming out on the law of the international financial institutions. At the moment, I'm working on a project on the accountability of the IMF. International financial institutions or international monetary institutions, IMIs, are organizations that promote monetary cooperation and facilitate the exchange of money and funds between countries. They do this largely by providing financial assistance and loans to member countries that are facing economic difficulties. Some of these institutions are geographically focused and operate within a particular region or set of countries, like the African Development Fund, the Asian Development Bank, or the American Development Bank. Others are regulated more globally and include broadly three institutions: the World Bank, the Bank for International Settlements, and the International Monetary Fund. And in this episode, we're going to be focusing on the International Monetary Fund or IMF. That's because the IMF is often seen as having a more central and influential role than other institutions because it jumps in when countries face financial emergencies. But it's impossible to talk about the IMF without also discussing the World Bank and how the two have evolved over time and how they differ today. So the World Bank is a group of institutions really and that and the IMF were created at a conference in Bretton Woods in the US in 1944 and you have to view them separately because they have very different functions. The World Bank has evolved out of what was originally called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. The International Bank for Reconstruction and Development was developed 
to fund, as its name suggests, the reconstruction of Europe after the Second World War and the development of what we now call the developing countries, but which in 1944 were largely the colonies of the European countries. They've obviously evolved substantially since that point. The World Bank, for example, spent very little time financing the reconstruction of Europe. It did fund loans in France and the Netherlands, for example, but it very quickly became a lender to developing countries to fund largely hard infrastructure like roads and power systems and telecommunications. Over time, that's also evolved. So the infrastructure now includes social infrastructure. Social infrastructure refers to social services such as schools, hospitals, community centres, parks, public transportation, libraries and other public amenities that are necessary for people to live and thrive in their communities. The IMF, on the other hand, was born with a different purpose. The IMF was created to support a stable monetary system that would be based on what was then called the Bretton Woods system, which was a system of relatively fixed but flexible exchange rates based around the dollar and its fixed link to gold at the time. And the IMF was designed to monitor that system and to provide financing to countries when they had difficulties maintaining the system or their role in the system. Uh, the IMF lost its primary mission in 1971 when the US broke the link between the dollar and gold. And so since then, its mission has evolved and expanded to deal with essentially helping countries maintain macroeconomic stability and balance of payments, sustainability over time. You've mentioned international monetary institutions. One of their remits is to give loans to countries. And we've seen, particularly in the 1980s, countries across the global south receive loans can you just tell us a little bit about that relationship between IMIs and countries in the global south? When the World Bank, for example, when they make loans to countries, like most lenders, they put conditions on the loans. The conditions, though, are not purely economic and financial conditions. They can also include policy conditions. And the conditions might be to open up the sector to allow for more private sector participation. So to cut back on the role of the state and allow more role for the market and the private sector rather than to allow state-led development, for example. In the case of the IMF, the IMF doesn't lend for projects. It comes in when a country has a balance of payments crisis or can't pay its debts, for example. A balance of payments crisis occurs when a country faces a shortage of foreign currency reserves, often dollars, which it needs to pay back for the import of goods and products and to pay back foreign debts. And it lends money that goes directly to the budget of the government. And so the conditions it attaches are purely policy conditions, because there's no project that's connected to it. And there the concern was that because it was policy conditions, it was putting in much more ideologically driven conditions that were really designed to cut back the role on the state and expand the space for the market and the private enterprise. Its argument was that the state wasn't all that efficient, and that's why the country had got into problems, and that therefore you had to allow the private sector in. And the private sector didn't just mean the national private sector, it also meant foreign investors should open up so that you allow more foreign investment as well. And so allowing foreign investors in and liberalizing your trade allowed more competition, more exports, 
and that would allow the country eventually to develop the capacity to pay for the development that it wanted. Following colonialism and its aftermath, many countries at the time were left in such bad economic shape, they had no choice but to seek loans from the IMF, even if it meant having to cut social services. So they were in a very dire situation to begin with. The IMF said if you follow our policy prescriptions, things will turn around and you'll do much better. But the policy prescriptions meant the government must cut its budget very deeply. It should reduce the size of the public sector, which meant laying off workers. And because of the size of the cuts and because they were pushing the countries to promote export-led development, so they wanted the money to go into export industries or export trading sectors rather than into, say, health and education, the budgets in those sectors were being cut. He says the cuts to social services meant that poorer people weren't able to access adequate healthcare and public services. So the impacts of that could be incredibly negative. It could affect education, poor people's access to health. Because for the rich people in the countries, they could afford private services. And in many cases, they were not even getting them in their own countries. They would be going overseas to get them. So they didn't suffer from that. But the people who relied on public services were finding those services cut back. And that had hugely negative impacts. And it happened in country after country. In many countries, the policy measures also had environmental impacts. What did the African countries have to export? It was largely extractive industries, or it was shifting from producing food to producing agricultural products that you could sell on the global markets. And often that meant you were using more environmentally damaging fertilizers, or you were doing extractive mining projects that were environmentally damaging. In some cases, it was logging, so you were tearing down forests to do this. And that has obviously all sorts of negative consequences. The impact overall on Africa of that decade was very devastating. Okay, so structural adjustment programs ended up having an overall negative impact on people living in those countries. Having these austerity measures as a condition of receiving money to deal with an economic crisis actually ends up really damaging to the people who live in those countries. Yeah, absolutely. And in December 2021, the IMF's managing director, Kristalina Georgieva, said in an interview with Euronews that the European Union should, quote-unquote, not put economic recovery in danger with the suffocating force of austerity. So they do know that austerity is bad for governments and people. In fact, the IMF's own research has shown that austerity worsens poverty and inequality. So has there been a policy shift? You'd think so, but in May this year, there have been some protests in Suriname about the austerity measures that the IMF has imposed yet again in return for a loan package. So I wanted to understand a little bit more about what exactly those conditions mean for the people in recipient countries, and why governments continue to take out IMF loans. There were recent publications from the IMF and the World Bank where they now said, no, no more austerity. This is the wrong model. We've made a mistake. But that positioning was actually never translated to their staff. This is Atiyah Waris. I'm a professor of fiscal law and policy at the University of Nairobi in Kenya. I am the current UN independent expert on foreign debt and international financial obligations and its implications for human rights. I'm also currently a commissioner on the Lancet O'Neill Commission on Racism and Structural Discrimination in Health, where I chair the working group on finance and governance. 
I'm the only specialist in my field in the East African region, which is a sad statement of fact. Atia has dedicated herself to observing the work of financial institutions, such as the World Bank and the IMF, what effects they have on the lives of people, and how to hold these institutions accountable. The IMF is, is complex, and of course it has a contentious history, not only in the African continent, but actually across the world. And it was founded after World War II, at a point in time when most African countries were not even independent. And so even the space and its mandate and how it has been set up has been in a, a manner that is not inclusive of countries that were colonized at that point in time. But when we got into the 60s and the 70s and African countries were gaining independence, of course, now the IMF started to play a more significant role because now instead of speaking to the imperial power that was colonizing an African country, now you had to come and speak to the actual African country. And so they would provide loans and technical assistance with the idea of economic development and stability. In its essence, it's not a bad decision to say, spend on this, don't spend on that, that'll grow your economy more. But she says when the IMF places the condition of privatizing social services on countries, people aren't able to stay healthy and contribute to the economy. If you're privatizing social services, you're removing your responsibility away from the people, but you're still collecting the taxes in order to pay back the loan. And here's what happens. You spend less on healthcare. When people get sick, they don't get better faster. If they don't get better faster, they don't go back to work faster. So it doesn't matter if you've opened up the economy by building more infrastructure. If your people are sick, nobody's going to actually utilize that space to grow the economy. Increasingly at the time, in the late 1960s and the early 70s, a human rights discourse was beginning to form in the legal scholarship and in the UN. But Atiyah says bodies like the IMF and World Bank were pursuing a different path altogether. And so while they talked about economic development and stability, on the other side, you had the UN pushing for human rights principles and are you making sure that your people are treated well? But the IMF policies have been really criticized without a connection to human rights. In 2019, Atia published a book with the title Financing Africa, which looks at the history and present of money, tax and debt on the African continent. In her more recent work, she's been focusing on Argentina and Pakistan which have had a long history of borrowing from the IMF. Since the 1950s, the two countries have received multiple loans to address economic challenges, including inflation, currency devaluation and external debt crises. Argentina is the biggest debtor to the IMF, with a total outstanding debt of 46 billion US dollars, while Pakistan has the fifth biggest outstanding debt at 7.4 billion US dollars. Some of your recent work has been on the IMF loans in Pakistan and Argentina. Now, both are countries that are immensely indebted to the IMF. Can you tell me some context here? What's the relationship between the IMF and Pakistan and Argentina? Argentina is a, it's a big economy. And the loan, it's tended to come in at the beginning of political regimes. That was something that I noticed when I was there. And unfortunately, with the austerity measures that we've been talking about, one of the things that did happen was the Argentine currency was devalued incredibly um, about 20 years ago. And the government also made a decision to nationalize dollar accounts. These are privately held accounts. And this really destabilized the country. And they haven't, I believe, ever come back from that. And it's then put them in this cycle of extension of their debt facilities and increase of the debt amount. In other words, 
Some of the more recent IMF loans to Argentina were used to pay back previous IMF loans, including the interest that had been accruing over time. Atiyah says, in the case of Pakistan, the country's debt reveals just how a country's debt can spiral when they take out IMF loans. Pakistan is one of about 14 countries across the world that has a loan with the IMF that has a surcharge on it. And a surcharge basically means that if you're paying a 1% interest rate and you default on your payments, which frankly, most of these countries are defaulting right now, then in 2025, you will now not be paying 1%, you'll be paying 3%. So you're being penalized being unable to pay. And if you can't pay 1%, the chances of paying 3% are like less than nil because you couldn't even make the 1%. How does an agreement like that get negotiated? Then what is the mathematics at the IMF that say that it's okay to put something like that in a loan agreement? And do they really think that by putting that in, it's going to force these countries like Pakistan to actually pull that 1% together? I mean, Pakistan has been hit with floods where one third of the country was underwater. This is not even a carrot and a stick situation. This is a stick and a bigger stick situation. And so what you're saying is those surcharges don't exist in every country. They just exist in certain countries? Yes, the 14 countries. And it includes Angola, Egypt, Argentina. It's across Latin America, Africa and Asia. Another issue is that once governments take out loans, their countries end up extending the loan and having to pay it back for decades to come biggest problem about the way in which these loans are structured is that you just have regimes coming in and then renegotiating to extend the duration of a loan so that it's somebody else's problem when they are no longer in leadership. I mean, and that is the reality on the ground is I would come in as a leader, I would inherit a loan negotiated by a previous leader who's very happily off in the world, wherever they are living their lives. But now I'm landed with the, oh my God, the loan is due and payable in the next five to 10 years. And I want to be a leader for five to 10 years. So what am I going to do? I'm going to renegotiate and get a 20-year extension. So there's never actually a leader that takes responsibility for the loan because they just come and extend because it's about survival of their leadership. I wonder if we go and interview past presidents across the developing world and if they're honest enough to now answer if they ever thought they would ever be able to pay off an IMF loan during their leadership tenure. The longer a loan agreement is in place, the higher the chances for prolonged austerity. The value of your economy, if it doesn't grow and respond to the austerity, which is what has been happening, then what starts to happen is that the value of the currency goes down. And when that happens, the price of goods go up. So then you have food insecurity. Then if you look at Argentina and many of the other Latin American countries are famous for having had their middle class move into the lower classes, where people went out to go into the slums and live in the favelas because they couldn't afford to be middle class anymore. Now, the moment that happens, and we're actually in that moment right now across the world, then you do know that the economy is going to crumble, unemployment is going to increase, and this inequality is going to be off the charts. In 2020, the Argentinian government then defaulted on its debt for the ninth time. Some of that debt is owed to the IMF. Where are things just right now at present? Argentina has a very hands-on process with the IMF. Their Minister of Finance actually goes to Washington, I believe, every quarter 
to make reports. I mean, it's literally being micromanaged. They have this staff level agreement of 44.5 billion. They've not received all of it, but it's supposed to cover budget support to fund the national treasury, to reinvest central bank reserves, and all of that is attached to the currency level. But these quarterly reviews, I, I think, have completely taken over their ability to work because that's all he does. They've got a huge mining operation that's just been set up in the north as well. It's also very much tied to private sector. They're hoping that is what is going to turn things around. But that has also got it's bumping up against indigenous people's rights in that area. It's a very nuanced space of what they're going to use to get the money back. versus them being cognizant of the kind of lives they are destroying in the way there. Atia says the problem is that the contracts around IMF loans are extremely opaque, meaning it's really difficult to hold the institution to account or even evaluate what impact it's had beyond the austerity measures. When you come to international contract law, then those contracts or agreements unfortunately are private and confidential. and this is problematic because there can be no societal oversight over what a group of human beings in their country are deciding to take on their behalf representative or otherwise democratic or otherwise people still need to know what their governments are doing on their behalf and i think it is this sort of secrecy around this agreement that is actually the biggest problem you don't even know how much your country got why it got it where it's supposed to use it and could it have negotiated better terms it's like you're in a big black hole and you're trying to scramble to get out and you just don't know where the edges are what you're saying is interesting that it determines so much of a country's economy and yet there's absolutely no transparency or accountability so people who are on the receiving end of those austerity measures or any of the measures that the IMF instructs have no idea what the terms are besides what is publicly announced and they've also no idea how to report back to an organization that's essentially having an impact on their lives yes there are no spaces where you can reach to the imf as societal actors and i want to tell you that when i made my presentation to the human rights council in march the yeah. uh, permanent representative from germany actually said that debt should not be allowed to compromise human rights that that should not be a rationale but germany is saying that in the international space yet they also sit in levels of leadership at the IMF and the World Bank so the signs are there that the IMF is aware of the negative impacts it's just not responding to what it already knows that austerity isn't helping countries in financial crises cope and develop what you start to see is almost a blueprint model it's the same set of conditionalities in all the countries because that's the only way this single institution that the IMF can even manage to monitor and evaluate it's a practical decision i appreciate the practical decision but then there isn't a recognition of the reality on the ground on where mozambique sits right now versus where kenya sits or versus where sri lanka or argentina sit these are very different countries and unfortunately that model didn't work out no no surprise and austerity measures is what are being constantly encouraged and this is not changed they are still encouraging austerity measures and when this happens the first thing that is cut are social services is health and education so they cannot be business as usual they cannot be loans as usual there has to be a rethink
it sounds to me that this is another form of maintaining control. The IMF seems to be responsible for keeping them in debt, and that feels exploitative. Yeah, and Atiyah said to me, it's almost like there isn't any recognition of why those countries are in the situation they're in in the first place. So you'd think that by now, they would have at least figured out a way to stop countries getting further and further down the debt spiral. Is there anything in the way that the IMF operates that suggests that maybe they're changing their culture or their approach? So when I spoke to Danny, he did say the way the IMF handled the COVID-19 pandemic suggests that there are signs that the IMF is at least beginning to look in a different direction. During COVID, the IMF was lending money and the managing director's line was spend the money freely, but keep the receipts. So we'll monitor what you did with the money, but this is an emergency. Make sure you're looking after your population and spending money. Austerity policies are still ongoing, but I think they're much more sensitive to the social impacts than they used to be. There's much more, at least at a rhetorical level, of insisting on social safety nets being protected. The IMF addressed some of this in a paper titled The IMF's Evolving Role Within a Constant Mandate, which it published in March 2023, where it describes areas of so-called enhanced focus, which now include climate change, gender, inequality and social protection, amongst others. The reason it's evolving is because our understanding and the demands of the macroeconomic situation of monetary and fiscal affairs in countries has evolved and these issues have now become critical from a macroeconomic point of view. And so as a responsible organization, they have to take them into account, at least to the extent they affect the macroeconomy. And they're beginning to do that. There's no question they've become sensitive and are addressing those issues. But he says it's not clear exactly how it's implementing these changes yet. I think one of the big challenges that this raises for the IMF, and I don't see much evidence they addressing this publicly at least, or, you know, who knows what's going on inside the institutions, is if you're going to address these issues, you need different operating policies and procedures. If you're saying climate has become an important macroeconomic issue and you're only going to address it to the extent it's a macroeconomic issue because you're not a climate specialist organization, where's the boundary between the climate issues that are relevant to the macroeconomy and the ones that are not relevant to the macroeconomy. That's a judgment call at the end of the day. And how does the IMF make that judgment? For Danny, just as for Atiyah, much of the issue is about transparency and the IMF's lack of it. I think it has a responsibility to tell its staff and the world that this is the criteria we use. These are the policies and principles we will follow. This is who we're going to consult when we come to a country. This is how we do our work. And that we're going to hold ourselves accountable for doing it in an appropriate way. And then the international community can debate and say, you're doing it in a good way or you're doing it in a bad way. But if that's the way you're going to do it, what we want to see you do it that way. We want to see you applied evenly to everybody, rich countries as well as poor countries. And we're going to hold you accountable for the way you do that. He says one thing to keep in mind is that although the funds the IMF manages can seem huge, there are limitations to how it can actually use them. I think it's an important point to keep in mind is one of the issues with the IMF is it has a total of a trillion dollars roughly as its resources that it can use for countries. 
not all of that is freely available to be used. Some of it is the money that member states contribute, but they contribute some of the money in their own currency, so that's not all usable everywhere around the world. So that, the, in a sense, how much it can use is limited. If the rich countries were more generous and contributed much more freely to the IMF and it had double or triple the amount of resources that it had, its policy choices that it could offer to countries would also be more generous. And so, in a sense, the IMF is getting the blame for the stinginess of the rich countries. And that doesn't let the IMF off the hook for what it does, but it also is important to keep in mind that it's dependent on its member states to support it, and they're not doing the job that they did. If you were to think of alternatives to the IMF, sort of the loan regime that is in place globally, what alternatives could you think of? Or do you think there are alternatives that we should be working towards or that countries, particularly in the global south, should be working towards? I think if we were reinventing the system now, we'd probably design it in a very different way. But it, it took two world wars to get to Bretton Woods and to create the World Bank and the IMF. And I don't think we want to go through that to have the opportunity to redo what the world did at that point. So in a sense, we're stuck with these institutions and we have to make them work as well as possible. That doesn't mean there isn't space to create new institutions. For example, the BRICS have created the New Development Bank and a Contingent Reserve Arrangement. BRICS is an acronym that refers to a group of five major emerging economies, Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Together, they represent approximately 41% of the world's population and about 23% of global GDP. The Chinese-led development of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank There are regional monetary arrangements which work more or less successfully in different cases. So there, there is some space for new institutions. Danny says having better access to better loans is especially important for countries across the global south and particularly in Africa. The cost of finance for Africa is very high, much higher than other parts of the world. So there's a penalty for being an African country that isn't justified on purely financial grounds. So we need these institutions to help fill that gap. The sad reality is they do not have enough financing to meet the needs of their member countries. And that's why the big debate at the moment for multilateral development banks is trying to evolve and expand their capital adequacy framework to lend so that they can provide more financing. Can the World Bank and the other multilateral banks expand, their, use their capital in a way that they could leverage more money than they're lending now so that African and other countries get access to a broader range of financing to deal with climate and other issues. But Danny says, most importantly, financial institutions need to have measures in place by which governments and people can hold them to account. All of the multilateral development banks have what is called an independent accountability mechanism which is a citizen-driven complaints mechanism that allows communities who say they've been harmed because, say, the World Bank didn't follow its own policies and procedures in the projects that it funded in a country, and that as a result, they've been harmed. And they can go to, in the case of the World Bank Inspection Panel, and bring a complaint saying, you should investigate this because we've been harmed. And the inspection panel is independent, so it's independent of the management 
and it does an investigation and files a report saying we've done an investigation, we've spoken to management, we've spoken to the communities, and it's clear that the bank didn't do its job in this project. And as a result, there's been harm, and now the management should correct that problem. Since the setting up of these accountability panels, the investigations have resulted in some relief for affected communities. For example, 70,000 people previously ignored by the World Bank received compensation for their losses in a bridge project in Bangladesh. And in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a forest project was revised to provide greater protection to indigenous communities who had not been adequately consulted about the project. This year is the 30th anniversary of the creation of these mechanisms. All the major multilateral development banks have mechanisms. The only major international financial institution that doesn't have such a mechanism is the IMF. And it's time that the IMF, particularly now that it's dealing with these issues like climate and gender, it needs to move in the direction of having its own independent accountability mechanism. And the global community should be pushing it to do that. I suppose what that suggests is a kind of greater accountability and, in fact, to some extent, greater democratization of how those that are affected by loans directly, the people, can report back to institutions as large as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank in, as to now. Yeah, and these issues are incredibly complicated. No one really knows how you do it. And the communities that are affected have a unique set of information that nobody else can provide, really. And the institutions need to know that they're getting that information and they need to incorporate it so they don't keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And they learn from them and the international community learns how to do these projects better and these policies better. I reached out to the International Monetary Fund for comment regarding the issues covered in this episode and a spokesperson responded with the following. Quote, Structural adjustment programs in the 1980s are often criticized and, as we have said before, some of that criticism is justified. But we have learned from those experiences and gone on to adjust our programs at the IMF to make sure that they are more effective and transparent. One way we do this is by making sure that our members prioritize social spending on education and health with a focus on supporting the most vulnerable groups. It is also important to remember that we are a lender of last resort. Countries often come to us when they are in trouble, especially if their debt levels reach a critical point to the extent that it becomes impossible for them to borrow from international capital markets, or if they can, they end up paying extremely high interest rates. As such, for most of our low-income countries, we now step in and provide financial support at zero interest rates. End of quote. The spokesperson also added that the IMF has made additional interest-free loans available to low-income countries, such as the Poverty Reduction and Growth Trust, in order to help address new challenges arising from food insecurity and climate change. Unfortunately, the IMF spokesperson did not provide any response to whether the IMF intends to introduce any accountability measures. That's it for this episode. Thank you to this week's guests, Daniel Bradlow and Atia Warris. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. 
This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced and written by me, Mend Meriwani. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens and our theme music is by Nita Salve. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor and Alice Mason runs our social media. And I'm also the show's executive producer. And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi. Thanks for listening. <laughs>